This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 360, A Conversation with Dennis Hopeless. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and this is episode 360, as we have a conversation with Dennis Hopeless, who's the current writer of All New X-Men, as well as the acclaimed Spider-Woman. We sat down with Dennis to discuss his career in comics, uh, the comics he's written thus far, including Avengers Arena, Avengers Undercover, and the aforementioned All New X-Men, as well as Spider-Woman, uh, the current volume and the volume immediately preceding it. Uh, if you would like to email us at Comic Shenanigans, you can do so at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and you can also listen to us on Stitcher. Uh, so without further ado, let's jump right into the episode where we talk with Dennis Hopeless. Dennis, thank you for joining Comic Shenanigans today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So uh, usually the first question I like to ask people is, you know, what their first kind of interactions with comics was. But recently I've started doing something a little bit different and instead ask them, uh, what's the, the weirdest thing you've had to sign at a convention? I jump right into the hard stuff. <laughs> well, I'm trying to think. Um, I, you know, I don't think I've ever signed anything weird at a convention. I had some issues of Avengers Arena brought back to me with a dirty note. Like, what? You should feel. Yeah, well, Avengers Arena was a polarizing book. We had a lot of a lot of fans, and I'm really proud of it. But we also had a lot of people who were fans of the characters in it from comics with a different tone, mm. who very much disliked us doing you know hunger games with teenage superheroes so yeah i, I at um c2e2 last year somebody they didn't come and say anything to my face but they dropped off a stack of avengers arena and said you can have these back you should be ashamed of yourself whoa <laughs> so that was awesome yeah uh, I, I feel like I, just, they you know, I just signed them and gave them the arena fans who came <laughs> <laughs> i feel like they must not have really read it though because i feel like that comic yes it was polarizing but i feel like once people read it the people who actually did read it um we're very pleasantly surprised because I remember like when I saw the original solicitations it's easy to make snap judgments on things but when you actually read it it was a really rich character drama thank you yeah that's what we were trying to do and we definitely turned some people around people that were just turned off by the concept um you know it's comics so there are people who are huge fans of the runaways who were just furious about the idea of of Nico and Chase being put through this so I, I get it I understand it I've, I've talked to enough um people on all sides of the argument to, to get it. Plus, I've been writing comics long enough to know that someone's going to hate everything you do. <laughs> yes, just, yeah, that's true. Usually they don't bring usually they don't bring your comics back to you, but... Well, that's about... I mean, you know, they could have, like, thrown water in my face. They could have done a lot of horrible things. They just gave me comics to give yeah. to my fans, so I was kind of okay with it. <laughs> that's kind of interesting. Um, yeah. So then let's do the, the simple question. How did you first start reading comics? I'm not ever sure which happened first. I know I bought one of those, like, two packs. They used to sell at Stuckey's, which were these things along the highway in the Midwest that had, like, a Dairy Queen and a bunch of tchotchkes for sale. And they, they had, like, a spinner rack with probably unsaleable comics that they had packed in two and three packs for a couple bucks. And I got an issue, some random issue of Firestorm, which was 10 years old at this point. Wow. <laughs> and uh, a Planet Terry, like Star Comics, Marvel Kids Comics line um, book. And those are the first that I remember having having purchased for me. Um, my father was also 
the kind of guy who, if he saw an old barn on the side of the road when he was driving, would hop out and go look in there to see if there was a vintage car he could talk someone out of. <laughs> and he, he did this once. He climbed into a barn and he found a box of old comics. And I guess he stole them is what happened. Because somehow he <laughs> brought them back to me. So I had a, a big box of like weird mid-70s. I was born in 81, so they were a few years before my time. But like mid-70s uh, DC comics that I had around that were from some stranger's barn. <laughs> that's that's one of the more awesome uh, origin stories I've ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, what was it, now, when did you kind of start reading comics more regularly? Or was there a period? There was. I... I read them fairly regularly from like fifth grade to maybe seventh or eighth grade. And then my friends were all more into sports. So I kind of fell off for a little while. I mean, I was always into action figures, but I stopped reading comics and probably in eighth grade and didn't start back up again until college. So I did not fly the flag through high school. Like, like a lot of my, my peers, but I was really into them when I was, you know, like probably 10 or 11 through, 13, 14, okay. and then got back in in college. Now, when in your, I guess, your earlier years, what were your, your, who were your characters? I really loved Cyclops. Um, I, I think it was the uh, Pride of the X-Men thing that they did as a pilot. It oh, ran yeah. during Spider-Man and his amazing friends, and they just did like one episode of an X-Men TV show that didn't get picked up. And I saw that, uh, whether I saw it when I first aired or not, I'm not sure, but I saw that, and the guy with the laser eyes, which is how I thought of him, was really <laughs> awesome. But I never remembered his name. And then I, a few years later, they put out those first uh, X-Men action figures, and I learned that he was Cyclops. And so Cyclops was always my favorite, my favorite character. Now, when you were collecting action figures, what was kind of your action figure line of choice? Because there was a lot in that period. Oh, 90s X-Men for sure. I have about nine cable figures. Really? Wow. <laughs> No. I would buy all the obvious I would buy all the Cyclops I could find, but for some reason you could always get Cable and Bishop figures, which they had forty of each. You know. Yeah, I remember there being like so many of those, and very not many of Cyclops at all. Right, like the main, yeah, the main, what I considered the main characters that were harder to find. Now, what was it that brought you back into comics when you were in college? Then, because that's you know a significant period away. Yeah, I um, I was in film school sort of it was like a state school film radio tv program uh and we had to do a um what's it called uh <laughs> i'm sorry it's early for me uh we had to do a i can't think of what they're called the the drawings that you do before a movie to figure out your shots storyboards storyboards yes thank you we had to do a storyboard project and, uh, you know, we were just supposed to do rudimentary drawings of our shot list or whatever. And I thought, well, you know, comics are sort of like storyboards. I'll go into the comic shop I've been walking by every day for a year. So I popped into the comic shop and kind of got to talking to the manager there. And he was an amazing retailer. I didn't realize it at the time, but he was the kind of guy who would be like, okay, well, what sort of movies do you like? What sort of TV shows are you into? And he gave me that day, he gave me the um, Damien Scott Batgirl run. Uh, Preacher, like the first two volumes of Preacher, <laughs> and maybe even Grant Morrison's X-Men, oh, wow. uh, New X-Men. So okay. yeah, then I was screwed. I was absolutely hooked. <laughs> I, I don't think I even used the comics for the storyboard project, but yeah, he, he handed me all the right stuff at the right time. So, Now, how did you decide that you wanted to, you wanted to write these? 
Like, how did you make that leap? Because that's a big leap to make, especially when you're already older now than a lot of people when they kind of start having that mindset. Yeah, uh, well, my wife graduated a year before I did and moved two hours away to Kansas City to start a tattoo apprenticeship. And so my plan of, you know, moving to L.A. after I graduated and, and becoming a PA so I could be a screenwriter uh, wasn't going to work out because she was stuck in Kansas City for, you know, at least a year. So I was going to have to go either try to make it as a filmmaker in Kansas City, Missouri, which is not the easiest thing in the world, um, or, you know, get a day job. And that last year I was in school, I talked to a professor into letting me do a comic book proposal for, like, a some sort of filmmaking writing class where you were supposed to develop a pitch for a movie. And instead I did one for a comic and, and worked with a buddy of mine who was in art school on, you know, character designs and stuff. And that kind of opened the idea up in my mind that I could write comics. And then when I got back home and worked at Best Buy for six months and was miserable, <laughs> a new comic <laughs> shop was opening up in town. And I lobbied I lobbied to get this comic shop job as if it paid $800 an hour. Like this minimum wage comic shop job. I lobbied the guy from the day he opened. I sent him emails. I went and talked to him. I learned about, I knew nothing about board games or uh, um, like collectible card games, but I did research to learn how to talk about that stuff with him. So I got a job at the comic shop. Wow. And um, I've never just, heard of someone researching it that hardcore to get a job like that. Well, the comic, like a comic shop job does not pay very well, but every customer wants it, right? Absolutely. So it, any customer that doesn't already have some sort of career wants to work there. So, and I realized that. So I, yeah, I, I fought to get the job. And when I was about six months into that, a buddy of the owner walked in who he'd known since he was, a, since the customer was a little kid who had gone to the Cuber school. And that was Kevin Mellon, who is the, a good friend of mine and the artist I did gearhead with, which was my first book. So <laughs> yeah, I, um, sort of got the idea in college and then when I met Kevin and realized oh I can't make movies here but this guy could draw my stories and then I just pestered Kevin with scripts until he agreed to draw something now how did putting Gearhead together come about besides just pestering him yeah I had written some sort of project in between school or my senior college or something that I gave to Kevin which was like my preacher it was a 60 issue magnum opus thing that everybody writes when they first decide they're going to write a comic and I gave him the first script and he's like, well, this is good. You're better than I thought you'd be. But there's 12 panels on every page, and no one's ever going to draw this. So <laughs> maybe come up with something short and simple. So we did a pitch for like a 30-page one-shot that took place in a tattoo shop because my wife was doing a tattoo apprenticeship, so I was in a tattoo shop all the time. So yeah, we wrote this, or I wrote this love story in a tattoo shop that was a completely undrawable. It was like a short film. The first five pages were a guy walking down the street. Um, I did not understand comic book medium yet. Um, but yeah, we, I pitched that in San Diego and got some good feedback from publishers that year. And then we did another pitch that I think by the time it was done, we both realized it was shitty. So we didn't, we didn't go anywhere with that. And then I went to a punk show with my wife while Kevin was working on something else. It's a lot easier for artists to get other work than... than writers like once you've done some samples you can usually get a job so there was some a period there where i was kind of waiting for kevin to get available and i went to this punk show and saw these two like rockabilly girls get really drunk and get into a fist fight like over like a couch off the side where the where the um concert floor was and there were a bunch of hot rods outside 
when we walked in, and I thought, well, this, like, the idea of a rockabilly girl and a badass hot rod who punches people in the teeth is really would be a fun comic book for Kevin to draw. So that was the just <laughs> for Gearhead. And then I don't know if this is just my experience or everyone's, but whenever you get like a publisher to say yes for the first time, you kind of cram every idea you have into that first book because it's like we may never get to do another one of these. Absolutely. So instead of telling a simple story about, you know, a girl that wants to punch people in the teeth, we did this crazy, like, pseudo Mad Max post-apocalyptic with utopian cities, superheroes are the government thing that is impossible to pitch. Uh, At a a con, I just say it's about a girl and a hot rod who beats people with a wrench. Um, But yeah, we stomped every idea we had into that book and had a blast making it and learned a lot. Now, how did you make the transition from doing that to eventually working for Marvel? I mean, that's a, a big jump to make. Mm. Yeah, it took seven years. Um, yeah, it <laughs> takes time, right? <laughs> yeah, I... Well, Kevin got work, um, like I said, he got work before, and he got started getting paid work after that. So we started developing Lovestruck as soon as we were done with Gearhead in 2006. Gearhead came out in 2007, but I think we finished it in 2006. So immediately after that, I wrote the first issue of our next book, Love Struck, which didn't actually come out until 2011. Like, it took so long for me to finish it and for Kevin to get the availability that that book came out, like, two publishers later from Image in 2011. But I, you know, it became clear pretty quickly, well, I can't just wait for Kevin. Like, Kevin's going to get paid work. I'm not going to get paid work. So I did, I've counted before, something like 13 or 14 um, pitches and first issues that I wrote for stuff that either died or um, <laughs> didn't like either nobody was interested or artists flaked or like I wrote a hundred fifty a hundred page graphic novel with Phil Hester that was going to be drawn by a guy named Patrick Reynolds and Patrick drew fifty pages of it and then got snatched up by Dark Horse to do Hellboy stuff oh. and he is still to this day drawing Hellboy stuff at Dark Horse. So we have like half of a graphic novel finished that will never come out. Um, so lots of stories like that where I, or I developed a project with Mike Norton that ended up coming out. Like Mike's so busy that it came out after I got Marvel work. Like I developed it several years before that. Okay. Um, Scotty Young and I had a project and then Scotty had a kid. So I just did all of these, started all of these things while I was waiting for Kevin to be able to draw Love Struck. And at the time, it was infuriating. It felt like it's impossible for me to put another comic book out. And I'm never like no one's ever going to see this stuff, and I you know I get all these awesome artists that I'm buddies with from going to conventions, but you know they they have jobs they can't finish this stuff so it's very very frustrating. And then I believe it was in 2010, so like four or five years later, I decided you know what I have a lot of five and six page scenes that are finished from this stuff that'll never come out. What if I just trick editors into thinking it's going to come out? So I made cover, like I made logos and like cover synopsis, synopses and imaginary um, release dates for all of these dead projects that I had. And some <laughs> of them had like, you know, Scotty Young's name on them, Mike Norton's name on them. And I sent that out to like my favorite editors at Marvel and DC in this packet along with a gearhead trade. Like, hey, here's all the stuff I have coming out and here's my one book that's published. Get in touch with me. And I got several polite, you know, like, we don't have anything for you right now. Thanks for sending this in. Keep us posted on, on what you're doing. Look forward. And mostly crickets. <laughs> and then, like, 
14 or 15 months later, Alejandro Arbona, who was a Marvel editor at the time, had I had met him at a convention because at this, at this point I'd been going to cons selling Gearhead for five years, and I was buddies with Ryan Segman who was working with him, and he introduced me. and Ryan said, "You should read Gearhead; it's really good." Well, I had already sent him that, so when he got back to his office, he saw this stack on his desk of my stuff and looked at it. And so, yeah, like 14 months after I sent my samples, they asked me, or Alejandro called me and said, "Would you be interested in pitching something?" You know, I don't have anything concrete right now, but we'd love to to talk more and then somehow that same week Axel Alonso who's the editor-in-chief of Marvel got a hold of my packet and read through it and like sort of gave Alejandro the power to hire me on something so I got Legion of Monsters miniseries that was something Kieran Gillen was going to write but didn't have time to write it was already on the schedule so like I got fast-tracked onto that miniseries and while I was working on that the who the original writer on a X-Men season one backed off like backed away and they needed a writer to come in really quick so they asked if I would pitch that so yeah like I went from nobody cares at all to two you know like a graphic novel and miniseries at Marvel at the same time (laughs) in 2011 and um so yeah I was I was working on those when I quit my day job and were you still were you still working at the comic book store by then or no I (laughs) I quit the comic book store to do wide format printing I worked in a print shop in the guy's basement printing like big banners and retractable convention signs and like just like lots of large vinyl printing and uh, sign installs that's what I was doing at the time and I just got overwhelmed like I wasn't going to be able to write two projects and go to work every day so I went part time at first and then I quit and the day that I quit my day job, like the day I put in my two weeks of notice on my day job, my editor got let go from Marvel. Like they laid some people off in 2011. Oh, no. So yeah, I thought my career was over that day. But you know, then they offered me Avengers Arena. Like within six months, they offered me Avengers Arena and Cable and X Force, and they've kept me fed ever since. This is a kind of a weird question, but what do you think you're most well known for at this point in your career? I mean, you're obviously you're still in the middle, you're still in the beginning stages of your career. You have numerous books, but if someone says Dennis Hopeless right now, what do you think they think of? It's hard to say. I mean, because like Cable and X Force and All New X Men have a lot more readers than Arena or Spider Woman, but because of what Arena and Spider Woman are, I think like the internet knows me for either Avengers Arena or Pregnant Spider Woman at this point. <laughs> um, but if you, you know, like comic shop owners usually will talk to me about X-Men. So X-Men Season 1, Cable and X-Force, and all the X-Men are, are the, the books that retailers think of. So yeah, it's, it's a hard question to answer because I'm on the internet all the time. So I would say, well, I'm either the guy that killed all these kids in Avengers Arena or I'm the guy that made Spider-Woman pregnant. <laughs> I guess that's, that's fair. Um, now with Avengers Arena, so you mentioned that kind of came to you. You didn't pitch that originally? who's the editor for Avengers Academy had been for several years Christos Cage had been writing in a great book called Avengers Academy which was a bunch of teenagers in a Hank Pym run superhero school um, They that book was ending the kids were going to be graduating and they wanted a new like a new iteration of the Avengers Academy so they, they wanted it to be a little a little more PG-13 a little harder edge a little punkier 
and Bill had read Lovestruck, which sort of like that. Lovestruck sort of has a Buffy vibe, but it's set in a world where punk rock is hip hop. So like everybody, like punk rock culture is really big. Um, and he liked the aesthetic of that and the, the sort of asshole kids that I wrote in that. So we originally pitched a um, like a shield run military academy style school where shield came in and took over the avengers academy and pepper Potts was going to be the well like i think bruce banner was the headmaster but was never around like he agreed to do the job but hated it and so pepper Potts kind of stepped up as his number two and ran the school and i created all these new characters who were going to be the students and they were all sort of <laughs> um like angry broken kids <laughs> and I pitched, I don't know, I pitched like three story arcs. It was my first ongoing, so I was really motivated. But I pitched three story arcs and all these characters, all these character arcs I wanted to do. And Bill really liked it and took it to like a lunch meeting with Tom Brevoort and Axel Alonzo to pitch the whole, <laughs> the whole story. And the third or fourth arc was going to be um, like a Triwizard tournament with the Jean Grey School and... I don't even remember, the Future Foundation, maybe like a bunch of different Marvel Universe schools that turns into the Hunger Games when the villain takes it over. Um, and Axel read the pitch, heard Bill's whole spiel, and then pointed at like the two sentences of that and said, that's your book, we can sell that, just do that. <laughs> so like, you're greenlit, but just this sentence. So I, yeah, I took my cast and made them all, some of them are already British, but made the rest of them British, and they became... Deathlocket and then the the um, Braddock Academy, which are you know some of the main characters of Arena. So I moved them over there, and then we brought in some Runaways and brought back some of the original Avengers Academy students and brought in just different Marvel Universe teens and Darkhawk, who was not a team. How did you decide which characters you wanted to use? I made a list. Um, of the academy students that I liked, um, I dug around for weird characters. So that I mean, originally, so they could be cannon fodder. Um, so like Red Raven was a you know initially there to die quickly, and then I saw Kev Walker's design for her and wrote a whole character arc for her. Like, oh, I'm gonna do this, and then it turned out we didn't have space, so she ends up being the one and only actual cannon fodder in the book. Um, but. Axel, it was Axel's idea. He said, you know, every con we do, people ask about the Runaways. Why don't you put the Runaways in this book? And my immediate thought is, because Runaways fans will try to murder me. As, you know, <laughs> and sure enough, that sort of how that worked out. So I, I you know, picked a couple Runaways. And if I had it to do ever again, the cast would be smaller or full of more characters that aren't in the limelight. Because I, a, a, I made a list of characters I really liked and really wanted to write. And then I ended up sort of structuring the book around that like well i don't want like i want all these people to to get the the spotlight so every issue will be from a different perspective which is really fun was a really fun challenge as a writer but it's the hardest thing i've ever had to write until spider woman like it was very structurally challenging and um just figuring out how to make 16 different voices all completely different when they're all teenagers who have superpowers was was an interesting challenge um, but yeah, I, I'm super glad that that I got that note. As frustrating as it was at the time, that book had built-in drama from the very first page. That, you know, like, hey, you're all gonna die, 
now go. And I could, I got to do all the same um, little character arcs that I wanted to do, but with all of this like intense pressure cooker drama on the whole time. No, you were doing that at the same time as Cable and X-Force, right? Yes. Now, what was that like, kind of balancing the very different types of books at the same time? It was a failure. It was a, it was a nightmare. Uh, I had no idea what writing two ongoing... Well, I had no idea what writing one ongoing series was going to be like. And I obviously didn't know that we were going to get the kind of early feedback on Arena that we did. So I was dealing with, like the weird emotional turmoil of having strangers like threaten you online because mm. um, before this no one cared like no one people didn't talk to me online people didn't know my name I, I i had written some comics but it was not the case that i was a public figure at all and then arena came out and to a small fan base of these characters i was the devil so i had to like i had to shut off the um the comments on my website because i was getting all these like nasty comments and I was getting emails every day and Twitter. Like, I had to block people right and left because there was, like, some weird, weird things people say to you um, if they <laughs> decide you're doing something wrong to a comic book character. So I was dealing with all of that. And then I had never written at this speed. Like, I had never written at half of that speed. Cable and X-Force double-shipped. Um, I want to say Arena double-shipped periodically. So I was doing, like, three and four monthly comics worth of work right out of the gate wow. and they, the book shipped the same day arena one and cable and x-force one came out the same day and so yeah i was like being on a actually calls it speed wobbling like i was on a treadmill and i was i was upright but nah just barely <laughs> so um it's definitely a trial by fire and i think you know if i had to do over again i probably would have said no to one of them just so i wouldn't have driven myself insane but in the long run i think we figured out both book, we figured out both books by the end and got kind of righted the ship and I learned how to do this job like it's not it'll never be that stressful again and I, I, I can write half a script and these you know the first two days of the week and half of another script the last three without going insane so it, it worked out um, I think Cable and X-Force would have run for several more arcs if we hadn't been so behind from the beginning um because that book and the other X-Force book at the time that Sam Huffers was writing were both a little bit behind for different reasons. And so they kind of eventually decided, okay, well, we want to combine them into one X-Force book, but neither one of you guys have enough lead time to figure that out. So why don't we end with a crossover? That usually, <laughs> that usually works. <laughs> yeah, and it did. I, I, I think it made sense to, to come back out with one book. I would have liked to write it, and I'm sure Sam would have as well. But it, both of those books kind of dovetail into one another in an interesting way so I'm okay with that I just they sold really well like both books were selling great and we had to end them sooner than we would have liked but but no it was it was a good you know throw, throw a kid in the deep end and he'll either be scarred for life or learn how to swim right yeah or a little bit of both right <laughs> or drown <laughs> yeah um, you bring up an interesting point about Arena that you know that every character is someone's favorite even it doesn't matter how obscure they are who would you say is kind of your favorite obscure character that you're a little bit precious with without realizing it? From Arena? Or just in general? Uh, from anything. Porcupine is my favorite obscure character by far and away. <laughs> um, and, and that was the case before I put him in Spider-Woman. He is, he's in the um, Arcade's birthday flashback from Arena, just because I loved his costume. And then I, I loved seeing Kev... Or I guess Kevin didn't draw that issue. I loved the design so much that I put him in 
the villain bar sequence in Avengers Undercover. And then as soon as we were trying to figure out um, who the the villains Jess was going after in the first PI arc of Spider-Woman, he was the very top of my list. And then after I, I wrote them together, I'm like, well, he's staying in the book. Like, this guy, he's <laughs> amazing. But it started out, I just like his costume, but now I, he sounds like um, the dude from The Big Lebowski in my head. Okay. So when I write him, he's just, it's a ton of fun to write him. <laughs> That's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I was thinking about it. You know, everyone has has those characters. Like, I have, uh, purely because of how old I was at the time, but in the late 90s, they had a, a book called Slingers, which was, you know, very niche at the time. And it was four discarded identities from Spider-Man that had used that these four kids had took up the identities. And it was a very kind of cult book. Uh, people right. really enjoy it. And then the, those characters have not fared out so well over the years. Um, right. Some of them worse than others, so I get that idea of kind of being precious over those types of things. Same way as you know the Runaways fans, but I don't think I would threaten people. <laughs> I would just no, I might be disappointed about it, but I think I'd keep it to myself. But I guess that that's what makes me different. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, people will say things on the internet that they I mean, like the guy that dropped the books off. He didn't do it while I was there. True, and people are not nearly so bold uh, in person. Um, and I get it. I figured it out. Like you kind of, you kind of just have to laugh it off once you do this for a while. Because the higher profile projects you get on, the more people are angry with you every time. Mm-hmm. But you know, we also get awesome feedback from fans, and that's the thing I think that that people don't realize is it's very easy, especially on the internet, to only listen like to surround yourself by people who agree with you. Mm. So to think that everyone hates this, well, no. <laughs> Anything you hate, there are a bunch of people that love that. Like that's their favorite thing. And those people will reach out to the author, too. So the feedback we get is so varied that, you know, you just kind of learn to ignore all of it and hope your editors are, are, you know, your editors and the people you know in your real life are pointing in the right direction with with what they think because the signal-to-noise ratio gets crazy. Like, especially, like, Hickman. I can only imagine what Hickman working on Secret Wars, the kind, like, the (laughs) volume of feedback he must have been getting. And it, you know, it just becomes noise. That's true. Now, who would you say was the character in Avengers Arena that was the biggest surprise to you in terms of how much you enjoyed writing them? Uh, arcade. Oh yeah. Honestly. Okay. That makes. Um, I did, arcade was not my original plan because I didn't think there was any way to make arcade serious. Like I thought, well, arcade makes sense from a plot standpoint, but how do I make this guy scary? And that he's you just choose scenery he's amazing he, as a writer a, a bad guy that loves to hear the sound of his own voice and is kind of goofy is really really fun to write so arcade surprised me the most of the kids weirdly metal okay um, you know metal's the spoiler metal is the first character to die dies on the last page of the first issue and you know he was the one that i was gonna let die after 20 pages so i obviously wasn't a super big metal fan before but when I, you know, writing the character, I kind of fell in love with him, and so it was <laughs> devastating writing that first issue that I that he, that he died the way that he did. Um, but yeah, it, you know, whatever character you're writing, if it's going well, you, you usually the ones you didn't think would be fun surprise you because you have to find something that's interesting about them. Um, in Cable and X Force, Domino was sort of uh, given to me; like I didn't choose Domino, I wasn't super excited about writing Domino in my mind Domino was just you know, the lady with the spot on her eye that stands next to Cable in the in the 90's posters <laughs> um, but writing Domino with Colossus is 
one of the highlights of the book for me. Like I really enjoyed writing their relationship and figuring out like why these two people would be interested in one another. And now I love Domino. So a lot of times your favorite characters like already exist in your head because you've read so many comics with them or you know you've, you've been a fan. Like I, I will never write Guy Gardner. Guy Gardner is my favorite DC character by a country mile, but I can't write Guy Gardner because he's <laughs> he, you know he lives in my head from the time I was twelve. I I, I can't do it. I don't. That that'll never happen. Um, so yeah, it's, it's the ones you don't you don't really know going in that you figure out are oftentimes the ones that are most fun to write. When you were writing uh, Avengers um, Arena, did you ever talk to Christos Gage about what you were doing to some of his characters? Yeah, and he was a super sweetheart about it. He wrote a uh, fill-in issue, um, which was... Early on, we realized we were, the, the schedule was messed up. And so I talked to him pretty early in the process about this would be a good place for fill-in, and we could have, you know, like, get that drawn in the can, and then we'll have, we'll have space for later. Um, it, I think it's like issue 13 or something. It came pretty late in the run, but... Yeah, he was he was great, and he was just like, "Look, I I love those characters, but I told my story, I and mean, I have my ending, and you know what you're doing is very different, and some of my fans won't like it, but yeah, he was he was super nice and and positive online, and I it's it's weird because you're always sort of breaking something that the person that came before you did, mm-hmm. uh, either in a, in this fashion where I'm completely stomping on it or. <laughs> Just the little ways where you change things or, or end relationships or whatever, because you kind of have to figure out your own end to the characters and your the story has to kind of take you in different directions. Um, it's oftentimes hard to read the, the follow up series to whatever it is that you've that you've written because that's not sort of not what's in your head. Um, but he was he was great. Now, when when Avengers Arena ended, you I believe you guys already knew that Undercover was going to happen. Yeah, yeah, Undercover. I mean, it, it could have just been Arena Season 2. It's just that the title didn't make sense. We had to decide, do we want to do an issue 19 and just launch into another arc, or do we want to relaunch um, with a new number one since it's going to be a new, you know, it's going to be a new concept. And we, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is we got to take a break and get ahead, <laughs> we decided to relaunch with a number one and um, call it Undercover. So, yeah, it was... In my mind, that's just the second or second mega arc, fourth arc of of Arena's adventure cover. Did you approach it differently in any way? I mean, obviously, it, it's a continuation, but did you try to make any conscious efforts to, to make it read differently? Yeah, yeah, we wanted to to drop the the POV shifting and make it more about the group. Um, absolutely, wanted to make the cast size smaller because that you know, juggling that many characters was kind of a nightmare um and it it's a it's a ptsd book like like the first the arena is the traumatic experience and undercover is the that period of time after the traumatic experience where you're still trying to get your feet underneath you um i a lot of I get a lot of feedback on that, people saying, like, you're suggesting that a traumatic experience will turn someone into a villain. No, absolutely not. Like, if you read the book in the way that, particularly the way the book ends, it's not about that. It's a, human beings are resilient, and that's the point of the whole thing. The story is actually, to me, about, you go through a rough time after you go through, you know, like, when something bad happens, like, it's it's rough for a minute, and maybe you make some, some poor choices, or maybe you, you spend time with the wrong kinds of people, or you wallow in self-doubt for a minute, but 
you know, you gotta you gotta find yourself again and climb up out of that. And, and I think people are capable of that, which is the point of the story. So we wanted to have the kids like just dealing with all of the shit from Avengers Arena in kind of a unhealthy way and being surrounded by all the worst influences while the good influences in their life kind of don't know how to relate to them. And that was that was the whole thing that was interesting to me about about doing more more stories with those characters. Um, so. So yeah, I mean, the, the, the mission statement was definitely different, and we wanted... Arena has a really dark ending, and Undercover has a really hopeful ending. Like, you know, it ends with them hanging out at, at the lake, swimming, being kids. So, that was definitely like, okay, we take them to the lowest lows, now how do they get back out? How did you decide to use Zemo in that book? Like, why was he the villain that you kind of went with? We wanted a high-profile Avengers villain because you know these books have Avengers in the title, but their their connection to the Avengers proper is sort of loose at best. <laughs> um, and so we wanted to use a high-profile Avengers villain. Originally, it wasn't really going to be Zemo; it was going to be Arcade pretending to be Zemo. It was oh. the original pitch of that book? And um, Tom Brevoort, I think, smartly said. We are not going to chump Baron Zemo just to to lift Arcade up. Like you've already made Arcade cool. Let's <laughs> let's figure out a way to to actually use Zemo. And so and we got to do some interesting things with Zemo. Zemo makes some really good points in that book. Like he he's very self interested and he he wants what he wants. But he makes some interesting points about uh, about Shield and the superheroes' connection to governments and and how this is all sort of. Like maybe maybe we're trusting these people too much, which is I think an interesting argument to make, especially to these kids who have, who feel like they've been shunned a little bit from the superhero community. Like they went through something that superheroes can't understand, and now they don't feel very super anymore. So this guy saying, you know, we're all just people. Like we, you know, let's live in the gray area. It's 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 a powerful argument, and so I think all that was thrown out immediately as soon as. Zemo appeared in the next book, but we were trying to to do a gray area Zemo, not a super dark uh, Nazi Zemo. Well, I, I appreciate that because I mean I, I'm a big fan of the Baron Zemo character, and when he was written by Nicieza and Busick, they definitely kind of made him go through a certain character arc where it felt like future writers were not quite they were making him more of a villain outright than where he had gone, where he was starting to be a, not necessarily heroic, but a little bit more gray. So your Zemo definitely felt more in line with the Zemo I'd gotten used to. Yeah, and that's where we that's where we were going. And, and again, you're never going to be 100 percent on board with whatever the next person does. So I understood why why they went away from him. He's scarier if he's super evil. But I I, I like to write gray areas. I like to write the confusing stuff and where you figure out that good and evil isn't so obvious. So yeah, he was a character that at least in my mind made sense for that. So let's talk Spider Woman. Because that's, that's, as you said, that's what the internet knows you for, right? I think so. <laughs> so how did you come on board Spider-Woman? I mean, you helped launch the book in the middle of a, a high-profile arc in Spider-Verse, and then the book yes. became something almost completely different right afterwards. Um, so how did, how, did they, how did you becoming involved with Spider-Woman happen? When Nick Lowe had just taken over the Spider-Office, he used to be the, ex, the head of the X-Office, um, and he had just taken over the Spider-Office, and they had Spider-Verse coming up, which is something that Dan Slott had been planning for years. Like, Spider-Verse was on the calendar for several years um, during Dan's run, so it was going to happen. 
and they wanted to launch a Silk book because Silk was just being debuted in in Superior. I think it was still Superior Spider-Man at the time. They wanted a Silk book. They wanted a Spider-Woman book with Jessica Drew, and they needed uh, to cross those characters over in in the Spider-Verse thing. So Nick asked me, would you be interested in doing a Spider-Woman book, and which of these two characters do you you like better? And I love Jessica Drew from mainly from Bendis' Avengers run and uh, what Kelly Sue did with her in Avengers Assemble. Um, so I immediately said, well, I want Jessica Drew. Can I do Jessica Drew? Um, and he, he said, yes, but if you do Jessica Drew, the first arc is going to be a Spider-Verse arc, and it's going to involve Silk and some of the other female spider characters and um, Jess. You know, are you willing to launch, or do you, you want to tell a story? I said, yes, absolutely. I want, to, I want Jessica Drew. And then that was like sort of how I got the job. Like at that point, I think I, it was just now we have to talk to Dan and figure out where the character beats or story beats are going to be with these characters. Because when you're telling a story like that, where the crossover is kind of this big giant Bible that is the story of the crossover. And I had not just one character in that, I had several of them and they're in different places. So I had to build a story kind of in the connective tissue between all of those elements of a thing that Dan was still in the process of writing. Um, so while we were waiting for that to come in, I sort of pitched what I want the book to be coming out of that. Like, what will we do with this once Spider-Verse is over? Because the first story is like this weird war story. What happens after that? And so Nick and I were talking about, you know, just quitting the Avengers and going to do street-level stuff and all of the... Um, issue five on notions were being discussed and pitched at the same time that we were kind of waiting for Spider-Verse to gel. So, um, to me, that was always the book we were going to do. And, uh, you know, we just had this, this Spider-Verse story to tell on the front end. Um, and yeah, and then the Spider-Verse story is just like, these characters do these things in Dan's story. What's a character-driven story you could tell through that? So I came up with the idea of just putting Jess through the worst case scenario spy story. Like she's, she's a soldier. She's a spy. She's supposed to be on this recon mission, but she has no details, no information. She does not really understand what she's supposed to do, but she's the only one who can do it because, because she's the only one to do it. So they throw her into a crazy situation where she almost dies several times. And, <laughs> and then in the end, she quits the Avengers, so I could tell the story that we actually pitched. <laughs> now, how did on the first arc? So the first four issues, you have Greg Land, and yeah. then the from there onwards, you have Rodriguez. Uh, did you originally like? How did how did you choose the artist? Did you choose the artist? Was the editor one choosing it, or how did that come about? Because obviously, yeah, no, the artists are a huge a huge part of the different arcs. I mean, the feel of the book is is the art is a big part of that, right? So yeah, and that was. I don't make those decisions. Like, I don't hire the artists. The editor will show me stuff. Like, what do you think of this guy? Do you think this will work? Here's examples of what, what he does. And it was, Nick definitely made that decision. Like, Greg can do the, the, the big, crazy action movie version of this that we need for Spider-Verse. Um, you know, you draw the monsters and all the, all the, the big set pieces and stuff that we want to do for that. But the book becomes something very different after that. So Javier's like, <laughs> like a totally different direction that will fit what you want to do going forward. Um, so that was definitely conscious 
that like this is this kind of story and then it becomes something else so we, we'll, we'll do an art shift um, but both of those guys are amazing to work with um, I know Greg Land gets gets some heat online because his art style is not everyone's cup of tea but he's an absolute sweetheart like he's the the nicest guy and he'll draw anything you ask him to and editors absolutely love the guy because he's very you know super professional and you know exactly what you're going to get um, so I, I have no complaints about Greg's work and Javier is by far and away the most talented person I've ever met he he makes all of us look incredible on that book every single issue he will take like a notion that I put in the script and make it into this just amazing visual storytelling that is a hundred times better than what was in my head um, Javier's a superstar so I I don't have any complaints I, I love I love the fact that the Spider-Verse stuff looks the way it does and is what it is because it's it's like a like you said it's completely different it's a stark like we clearly started a new story after that and and took the book in a different direction that's the whole point it's just wanted something different like she went through the worst case scenario of this Avengers thing and it's just like I'm done with this crap like I'm done with stuff I can't even explain to people because it's so crazy I want a normal life and then we just beat her with the stick of normal life over and over for <laughs> the next several arcs was it always your idea or that you wanted to change the costume or where did that directive come from? Nick wanted to change the costume from the time he took over the office. He, Nick did not like the 70s costume. Um, but it didn't make sense to change the costume right before she's going to be in a crossover that's in 10 books. You know? um, so we were never going to do it for Spider-Verse. And we were talking to Chris Anka about what the book would be going going out of Spider-Verse and what sort of changes he could make. So that conversation was happening while we were working on Spider-Verse issues. And then obviously the Milo Manara uh, controversy thing happened in there and everyone thinks that we changed the costume because of that. And really there was already, we already had preliminary designs for the costume before that whole thing happened. Um, so it was, yeah, it was, it was just Nick's personal preference and we were taking the character in different directions. So it made sense. How did you settle on using Ben Urich? Because, I mean, Ben Urich is one of those characters that everyone kind of likes him, but he just kind of floats around, and I really liked how you used him and kind of made him a driving force of the book. And it was Nick's idea to use him. I think he, he said no one's using Ben Urich right now, and the bugle has kind of faded into the background. Um, is there any way we could use that? And I liked the idea of kind of getting some of that daredevil heat from Ben. Like, we wanted to make it a street-level book. We wanted to to take it in a 80s daredevil direction anyway. So having that character play that role. Um, I also really like the idea of a newspaper man who doesn't know anything else living in, you know, 2015, 2016, where the, the newspaper has been crumbling for so long now that it's like a cliche to even make the joke, right? Um, <laughs> but they're still around. Like these, these things that just won't die but are clearly dying. Um, and what do you do in that place? So I liked the idea of Ben has all these case folders full of stuff that he never investigated because it was too dangerous or because he just didn't have the means and, you know, just wants to help people, just wants a normal life. Like, maybe maybe we can be better together than we are apart. That's always a fun kind of story to tell. Um, so it, it just made sense for the story. Plus, it just is... The way I describe Jessica Drew is she's very very well trained very capable can do everything the right way better than most but she's crazy impatient and it makes her really impulsive so she trusts herself completely 
to you know to get in and out of any situation but she'll dive in head first if she's sick of waiting and ben is the the opposite he's very patient and almost to a fault he will make sure he has you know he make sure he has his sources down make sure he has all the things he needs so they pull each other in opposite directions in a way that makes them very effective together it's it's, it's a fun dynamic well then you throw roger in it's just kind of this, <laughs> this well, I, yeah i love happy. roger <laughs> This is a happy comic relief guy who he's capable himself, but it's just the guy that they get they roll their eyes at. Now the first direct the first kind of issue you wrote of the kind of I'm gonna call it the new direction basically, it really does read like a television pilot. Like you kinda of put all the pieces in place. Um, it's a really strong debut and you get a really good sense of exactly who this character is now moving forward and also the people that are going to be important in her life and i reread it t- this morning actually before i chatted with you and i'm like man it's it still holds up as just such a great issue um Thanks. you know because again you get right into who this character is now it doesn't matter you you could have read nothing about her before and you get everything you need in that one issue right that was the goal and it, i felt like when I fell in love with the character was when Bendis brought her back from sort of obscurity. You know, she had a series in the 70s and was in the Avengers in the 70s, I think, and then was gone forever. And they, you know, they had different Spider-Women take up the mantle. And then Bendis brought her back and was just like, oh, here's this person you know. And used her as if, you know, as if you were supposed to know who she was and hit the ground running. And I thought, well, what's, how do we do that? But with sort of what I do and the kind of book we're telling here, like, Let's just climb inside her head and and let you know right off the bat who she is and what's going on and then and send her in that direction. And I, again, I think the Spider Verse story was a good way to let us do that because it was really crazy and really confusing and weird. And then the end of it, she just threw her hands in the air like this. And then you know we got to wipe the slate clean, kind of like this is who I was and this is who I'm going to be going forward. So, now from I'm glad the- from the minute you decided to use Roger, um, did you know he was going to end up being such a big part of the book, or did that it was just kind of kind of you realized how much fun he was to write? Yeah, I, I just realized how much fun he was to write. I, I put him. I wanted a villain. I wanted to interact directly interact directly with a villain in the first issue that led us into the the story of the supervillains being extorted. Um, so you know, I picked Porcupine because I like Porcupine. But then, yeah, once I wrote their interaction there, I thought he was really fun. And um, <laughs> I really liked the idea of her not getting the answers she wanted out of him because she knocked him out. So she just ties him up in her apartment, <laughs> which is super illegal and messed up thing to do. But uh, once I had written that opening scene in issue two where she's got him chained to the radiator, <laughs> is pretending like it's okay because she needs him to answer questions. I thought, okay, this guy's in the book for as long as I can keep him. He's amazing. <laughs> Now, obviously, uh, when the book kind of ended as part of, I guess, the last days or all that stuff going on with Secret Wars, uh, how early on did you decide that, yes, when we bring her back, it's going to be eight months later and Spider-Woman is going to be pregnant? Because that's a, a, a big – I remember seeing all the previews coming out, and that was the one where I was like, well, what? Yeah, we knew we knew she was coming back. Um, the, like, the book was never really ending. It was just everything ended with Secret Wars, right? Yeah, it was basically um, a hiatus. So- Right, so we knew she was going to be coming back. We had enough time, and everybody got busy. I had two Secret Wars minis, and Nick was editing a ton. So we knew she would come back, and we had a couple ideas for what we might do, but there, that wasn't set in stone. And then when Nick called me to have the first conversation about it, um, I mean, my wife had been pregnant for the whole time that I was writing Jess, 
and had had our kids. And my kids were maybe six months old or whatever when Nick called. And I had been dealing with baby at that point for, you know, over a year for pregnancy and baby for over a year. And so that was my, I laughed and said, you know, can she be pregnant? That'd be a big change. And it's eight months, you know, makes sense. And Nick just laughed at me like I was an idiot and said, well, we'll talk later. And, uh, I, you know, I wrote down some ideas in a notebook that were not very good and had some notions. And then I went to a Marvel creative retreat where we were going to be pitching what was happening. And Nick came and asked me and said, what, what can we do? And I, it was, it was at a spider lunch. So it was Dan Slott and Brian Bendis, um, and Nick and the editors and, I said, well, I still think she should be pregnant. Because at this point, I had, like, that idea was stuck in my craw, even though he had laughed at me. <laughs> and Dan Slot and Brian Bendis were like, well, that's a great idea. Like, nobody's doing that. With eight months later, that makes perfect sense. And Nick said, well, look, I've, I've heard that idea fall flat in the room before. So we could pitch it. Like, just you make your case and we'll see what happens. And I pitched it in the room. I said, you know, we, we've been writing this book about Jessica Drew wanting a wanting a normal life and being really bad at it. Like, that's sort of what Spider-Woman has been, and that's the heart of the book. So let's, you know, let's hit her with a tidal wave of normal. Let's let's give her the most normal life thing that a person can have and see how badly it devastates, um, like, everything she thinks about herself. And the room loved it. Axel, I mean, the first words out of anybody's mouth were, I love it. So <laughs> we were off to the races. Um, and it all just sort of came together. It was figuring out how to have an action-filled superhero story with a pregnant woman that doesn't imply we think pregnant women should throw themselves into dangerous situations was difficult. Um, and I ended up having to rewrite the first issue completely after the first draft because we decided to go a different way with it. But... I honestly think the first five issues of the new Spider-Woman arc are the best thing I've ever written. Like, it's the most personal thing. It's the... Uh, it feels exactly like what I was trying to do. A lot of that's Javier. Like, he, he saw what, what I was going for and made it better, like he always does. But I'm so glad that, <laughs> that they said yes to that and that we found that particular track because I think it says everything that I wanted to say and it's a kind of story that you haven't seen that much before, especially in comics, mm-hmm. where you deal with uh, not just the not just the like the cliche things about pregnancy and parenthood new parenthood but also the kind of scary stuff the stuff the my parents were awful i don't want to be awful maybe i'm not good enough at this and the you know i haven't slept in four days and i'm terrified and this is ever going to end i wrote my life is over like those people don't say those things because they're ugly but i think all parents feel like that sometimes and it was it was great to be able to do this the superhero story this weird alien hospital superhero story that kind of unpacks all of those all those new parent feelings and I'm, I'm really proud of it no, I, I, um, the fifth issue I, I think is my favorite of, of the new run just because I think it's uh, I read it and I was just and I, my son's two and a half years old and I was just like holy crap like this this is it really hit me on a personal level because it felt so authentic um, yeah. and again that makes sense because you know you have twin boys and they're not not very old yet so it kind of it was. I think you've definitely succeeded in kind of taking all those feelings that, especially someone like Jess or any new parent would feel, and kind of putting distilling them onto the page in a way that uh, felt very organic. Uh, just someone kind of having a meltdown, like just the opening few pages of just her kind of unloading on her friends, uh, right. was just I thought it was brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, I 
you know, I was the kind of person who didn't want kids ever. For and my wife and I were married for eleven years before we had kids, or ten or eleven. Anyway, uh, time goes in a different speed once you have children, as I'm sure you know. Uh, so I don't. It was either ten or eleven. I don't know how long it's been. But we had never intended to have kids, and that idea sort of slipped in after we turned thirty. We started to reevaluate things, and so I vividly remember being the guy who would go and hear my friends who were new parents talk about it and just think, well, you're, why would you do this? Why would anyone do this to themselves <laughs> and completely not understand it? And then I, you know, I've lived that and seen my wife live through it. A lot of, a lot of the book is actually my wife's experience because I'm not a mother. I didn't, you know, I didn't have to carry it or birth the children. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that there's an interesting disconnect there. Like people who've been through it and people who haven't have very different thoughts about it, especially people who don't want kids. If you grew up wanting kids, you maybe you know, you maybe pay more attention to what people are talking about these things than if you just think people are crazy for trying it. Um, so it, as, as weird as it is that I made Jessica Drew pregnant because she never seemed like that type and she wasn't in a relationship and, and all of the things, I think she's the perfect character to tell the story because it's about a person deciding they want something they never, ever thought they did and then going through the process of, of getting that and then seeing what it does to you and how it breaks you and puts you back together in a different way. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, if you think about it, uh, as I was saying before, you know, the internet and people make snap judgments on things. So I think when people first saw it, they're like, well, you know, what's this going to be? Is it going to be a stunt or a gimmick or something? And what you've proven in the, you know, in the last few months is that it's not. It's actually a very authentic story to the character and it still rings true for her. And that... Right. You know, I was glad in, again, to point out issue five, when you kind of, you know, show that there was no dad, that she got a sperm donor. Like, it, it, was, it felt very non-comic book in its normalness, but also perfect. You know, because you yeah. almost expect it to be, or it has to be somebody. And no, it doesn't have to be anybody. It could be this woman made a conscious decision, and that's, that's as, as much as you need. Right, and I, probably because I knew the ending from the beginning, but it was always strange to me that people were so... Like so concerned about the mystery, like the finger quotes mystery of who the father was. Because to me, it doesn't matter. Like Jess is clearly doing this on her own. You don't see a father, do you? Like this is this is the thing she's doing. The father is not an important part of the story, but mm-hmm. it was important for us to make it clear that this, you know, she has agency. Like this is a decision she made. This isn't something that was done to her or something she didn't know how to deal with. This is the choice she made, and and that was really important to me to get that in there because. Because yeah, it's, this is Jessica's story. This is not the father's story. This is this is her going through something that is very human and very relatable to you know like a large percentage of the population. Um, and yeah, I, I think it does work for the character. And I hope I hope people agree with you and 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 they're digging it because we're we're having a great time making it. It's really important to everyone involved. Well, again, it feels it feels like it is a kind of a labor of love because it there's a lot of heart in the book and it. Again, it, it could have, I feel like a lot of writers, not a lot of writers, that's unfair, but I feel like it could have been, it could have been cheap. And I think that maybe would have been some people's initial thoughts is that, oh, this is just the gimmick. And it hasn't been that. And I guess that kind of goes back to you being on Avengers Arena too, where it felt like, you know, to some people, they kind of wrote it off as being the gimmick without actually giving it a shot. And if they'd actually dug into it, they would have realized there's actually a lot going on here that, you know, at, at surface, if you're just looking at the cover, you may not get there. Right. Well, and some of it is that people who don't read a thing, they're just seeing the marketing. And the marketing is a gimmick, right? Like, mm-hmm. we market gimmicks, and then it's it's up to, uh, as creators, it's up to us to, to take the idea and make it into a story. Like, the execution is, is what people enjoy. Um, and, uh, yeah, 
just I come at stories from a character standpoint. Like I'm not a big plot guy. The plot is not that interesting to me. It's a it's a way to tell these human condition stories. And I did with both of those series. Like the hook is obvious, but the story is about people and what what these experiences do to people and how they how they react to them. Hmm. Yeah, that's just kind of what I do. That's how my mind works. So I'm glad that it, I'm glad that people connect to it. I like how you said before. It's interesting that we're we're preconditioned as comic book fans to expect mysteries. So the fact that you hadn't mentioned who the father was felt like a mystery, even though in your mind it was never a mystery at all. And then when right. you finally show it, I liked how it was very nonchalant. It wasn't something that you were building up to. Oh, guess what? It was a donor. It was just very you know. Just kind of, um, I can't think of the word, but very offhanded. No, of right. course not. Like, this is something I did. Well, Jess told the story when she was ready to tell the story, right? Like, she she had a lot of feelings about it because she needed to wrap her mind around it. And, you know, people were asking her about this thing, this decision she made while she was pregnant and sort of freaking out about being pregnant. And so even telling her best friend, like, she she, she waited until till it was right for her. And, yeah, I... I'm glad that worked out the way it did because once the internet started talking about the mystery, I'm like, this is a mystery. You know, they expect like they expect Doctor Doom's going to pop out and say Daddy's home. Like, what? I don't know what well, people think is going to happen. Here. Weirder things have happened. That's true. That's true. Um, and again, I, I, I apologize for continuously going to issue number five, but again, it really floored me, and I thought it was just absolutely fantastic. I loved how you used Roger as the kind of the sensible one, the one who kind of is able to talk to, to Jess and kind of say, this is normal. Um, you know, I'm able to, to kind of step in and, and help you, and it looks so easy, but I'm used to it, and you're not used to it yet, but it's going to be, it's going to get better, it's going to be okay. And I like the affection in that moment, because, it, again, it felt very genuine that we're seeing this relationship develop between, you know, Jess and this character who, you know, eight or nine issues earlier was was a quote-unquote villain that she was, you know, chaining up to her office door, or her office radiator. Right, right, yeah, I wanted to because Roger and Ben are the two characters in the issue that kind of are, are able to get through to her um, in different ways, very different ways, because they're, you know, they're, she's in a different place when she talks to them. But I felt like that right after we had the boys, it was other parents who were able to be like, it gets better. Like, you, you, you're going in the crazy part now, and it's, it's going to be okay. And most of Jess's friends are, you know, parentless superheroes who they don't relate to this stuff at all, which is kind of the point of the opening scene where you see she-hulk and, and patsy staring at her like she's a crazy person um <laughs> so yeah i mean and, and you know yeah roger roger's experiences are are limited and he is not the, the greatest superhero but he's a dad with a whatever with a five-year-old who's been through this stuff and understands what she's going through and that's the right thing to say so yeah i, I wanted <laughs> i the fact that that issue was that javier was able to figure out how to draw that issue is amazing to me because i wrote the most undrawable comic book script ever. It was just like this weird word filled play that I wrote him and said, like, just cut out anything you don't like. Cause I understand this one all fit. And somehow he made it fit and he made it amazing. Um, and he did that silent going out sequence uh, a thousand times better than it was in my head. Hmm. So Javier, as hard as that issue was to write and as much of me as there is in there, Javier and Alvaro, the inker, um, are the reason that it, it works. The reason that it exists as a comic book is because my art team is incredible. The um, I guess there's the I want to talk about the Ben Yura kind of segment in that issue because that's you're right. It's kind of a wall of text, right? Of the two of them going back and forth, but the uh, the visuals are actually really stunning and and simple, but they really work. 
But one thing I also liked about the sequence, especially after having recently reread the your kind of the first volume that you did, uh, was that it's interesting that in both times Ben Yurick's kind of prodding her to do the right thing to to investigate in different ways and kind of bringing her back into the fold. Uh, that he kind of does the same thing twice. Yeah, yeah, he does. He, he that's the that's the role that he plays. He was never going to tell her she had to come back to work because he first of all he doesn't. You know that's not his place, and also that's not going to work with Jess. You can't tell Jess what to do. So yeah, I, I love the I love Javier. How in the, the first page of that, he just draws the desk, like Jess is staring at the desk while they're having this conversation because she's uncomfortable and doesn't want to look him in the eye, and like the work is calling to her. And then in the end, you see Ben's face when he realizes he got through to her. I I, I, I love those pages. What can um, you, what can you tease for what's coming up next for Jess? Well, the next two issues um, are part of the Spider-Women crossover. Um, Jess is plays the mentor role for Silk and for Spider-Gwen, and they go have an adventure in Spider-Gwen's universe um, that's sort of crazy. But we, the way that we broke that down is that the individual issues, there's two issues of Spider-Woman, two issues of Silk, two issues of Gwen, and then there's like an Alpha and Omega issue. It's like an eight-issue story arc that goes through all the books. But each of the issues that happen in the individual books very much focus on that character. Like They're very character-driven stories, and they show you how this current plot, this current problem is going on, affects them. And, and we get to see Jess, the mom, going forward and dealing with being trapped in an alternate universe when your baby's at home with Roger. Um, <laughs> so that's a lot of fun. And so, yeah, we'll see, issue six and seven will be part of that. I'm very proud of that. I know crossovers are weird for people and they make you buy extra issues, but I think people are going to dig that story. And those other two books are fantastic. So um, uh, I'm not worried at all that people people won't like it. Um, and then issue eight is the first issue after Spider-Women. I just asked Javier what he wanted to draw, and it's a big crazy badass fights 20 pages of an amazing fight that Javier and I worked out that is fantastic it's almost silent it's not completely silent but it's it's very much just getting back to the business of being a superhero and it is gorgeous um, and then yeah, that's probably as far as I can tease now but we, we have big plans going forward now I want to talk about your other current book all, uh, I guess it's all new X-Men Yes. Now, how did you get approached? Did you approach, or did you, sorry, who came to who? How did how did this come about? Uh, Axel called me and asked me if I was willing to <laughs> to take over all new X Men after Bendis. And Brian Bendis is one of the guys that got me into comics. His Daredevil run was one of the first things I read in college. And working with Mark Bagley, who drew his amazing, you know, like a hundred issues of Ultimate Spider Man for Bendis on the Teen Book was super terrifying. I said yes before I thought about it because <laughs> it was a super overwhelming thing. Um, but yeah, they were just, you know, they were going to be relaunching the X line after Secret Wars and the whole Terrigen Mist uh, Poison to Mutants thing was, was being talked about and they wanted to do, you know, they wanted to keep all the X-Men going so they asked me what I would do and I thought, well, it'd be fun to tell the story that isn't that. Like, it'd be fun to tell the story of the kids who think they're invincible because they're teenagers who just want to go be superheroes while the rest of the X-Men are dealing with, you know, the world killing them. Um, so, yeah, I pitched a, a road trip story about these kids from the past who, who want to go be 60s X-Men in, in the 2016 Marvel Universe. And, you know, they're taking the teenage apocalypse and the teenage Wolverine 
and my favorite character from Wolverine and the X-Men with him. And yeah, it's, it was as simple as that. It was, I would like to tell a story on the outskirts of that story and, you know, every once in a while hit him with the stick of that story. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I've used that analogy twice now. I like hitting my characters with sticks. Um, <laughs> Yeah, they said yes. It was, it was very, very easy. I think Axel wanted me to do the book. Um, and there was a new editorial team on X-Men, and in one of the guys spearheading it was Daniel Ketchum, who was my editor on Cable and X-Force. So we were on the same page right off the bat. And it's been, it's been a ton of fun. The hardest thing about that book is keeping Mark Bagley fed because he's insane. He's a, he's a monster of, of the pencil. He draws so fast. Mm-hmm. All the time is relentless. So uh, yeah, just keeping them in scripts is the only thing that's tough. What? Um, how did you decide to? I mean, you kind of mentioned it, but you, how did you decide that you wanted to use those two characters from Wolverine and the X Men? Like, obviously you like them, but how, how did you make them kind of fit? Uh, so we wanted you, to. We, we wanted to add some diversity to the cast. Number one, was, um, because. We weren't getting Jean Grey, so we were only going to have one female character with Wolverine. Um, and the original, you know, it's a very white bread. The 60s X-Men are very white bread characters. <laughs> so uh, fortunately, Bobby's gay now, so that helped with our diversity a little bit. But we were looking for characters who would be very different from that. Um, I think Evan makes sense for the, you know, the, the story is about these kids that have the destinies they're trying to avoid. Um, you know, they're trying to be what they are even seeing how kind of horrible their life can go and that Evan is supposed to be Apocalypse so he made sense for that plus I just love the character and then Ivy you know she is my favorite character literally my favorite character from Wolverine the X-Men who is also a very Catholic African girl so she <laughs> she's perfect she was not she was not hard for me to convince from a from a diversity standpoint but also I just think she's fantastic now the opening arc with the the uh, ghosts of Cyclops. How did you kind of come up with that concept? Well, I mean, the, the other books are dealing with you know Cyclops is dead and uh, everyone hates him for this this thing that we don't know what it is. The world knows it, like some nine eleven event that happened that the world is aware of, but the books don't talk about. And Cyclops is persona, you know, dead Cyclops is persona non grata in the in the Marvel universe, and we have a teenage Cyclops on our team. So I thought we either have to avoid that completely or we got to lean into it early and show that this is very hard to have this face right now like he's the only person on earth with this monster's face and he you know he's got to wear it around so what's that like and it just made sense for the villains you know if if cyclops adult cyclops is a villain well then people that agree with him would be bad guys so the bad guys love Cyclops and that pit, nothing pisses off teenage Cyclops more than that um, <laughs> so that's kind of where that came from we just wanted to you know instead of it being a big crazy superhero story we wanted it to be this character story about these uh, these young mutants who misunderstand everything and, and they're following the wrong the wrong guy into battle and, and then the, the kid that has his face who wants to beat them all to a pulp for being so stupid um, no it it just made sense uh, that makes me want to ask a, a silly question, but um, do you know what happened to Adult Cyclops? <laughs> like, is, I, the, is there a yeah. group of people that know? There is a plan, and that is a story that is going to happen. Uh, it was going to happen a little bit earlier. Um, Civil War II sort of was, was being developed at the same time as all these conversations were going on. So it, initially it was going to be a thing that was revealed earlier. 
But yeah, that story's coming, and it's coming soon. Okay. Um, now the current Apocalypse Wars is kind of happening now. How did you kind of like? It, it looks like uh, maybe this is just my naivete, but it looks like each book is going to kind of come at it from a very different angle. So how would you how are you how would you tease it? How you're approaching yeah, that storyline? It's not a true crossover. It's three separate stories about Apocalypse happening at the same time that may dovetail in the future. But yeah, it's not. It's not a true crossover. We're not, I, the three stories don't interact with one another now, like in the here and now of the story at all. They're they're just having you know synergy or whatever they're having at the same time. Um, our story is digging into what it means to be a teenage apocalypse, um, and what you know what Evan's fears are and what it's like to to constantly be trying to avoid the the specter of I'm supposed to be steroid Hitler. Um, <laughs> And then we, it's a time travel story, Evan and Hank get thrown into ancient Egypt and have to encounter um, the, the early part of the apocalypse myth, I guess is the best way to put it. So it's a, it's a fun making Evan come face to face with his destiny story that will dig into the character. We've got, Evan has kind of been the, the buddy character for the first couple arcs of the book, so we're going to focus the spotlight on him and and deal with all of his crazy how did you um how badly had you wanted to write the blob because it does definitely feels like you're enjoying writing uh the blob as he fights the x-men blob was my favorite character to write in x-men season one like i really liked taking that character and figuring him out um and i wanted to i wanted to put after the ghost of cyclops i wanted to put classic x characters into the book so blob and toad were, uh, were early on my list and it just sort of worked out that the blob story became well. Here's a big, like, just a big punch fest that takes place across three issues while we deal with a bunch of character, you know, like keep the character arc stuff spinning while they're fighting this guy that they used to chump, who is now a grown man. It's very difficult to beat up. <laughs> um, so it, it just sort of works out that way. I, I, I do like the character a lot, though. He was again, he was a surprise. Like you asked earlier, he was a surprise fun character to write in X Men season one. So it was fun to do. An adult, an adult foodie, well dressed version of the blob. <laughs> um, what was it, uh, or what was your inspiration behind how you're writing um, Laura and Warren's relationship? Because I, I like that you know he's having a lot of problems with her, you know, kind of being the impetuous one who's not worried about you know physically dying and being beaten up because she can heal, and him having to kind of come to grips with that. The, like, the, like, where did you kind of come up with the concept of, of developing it in such a way to, to kind of show their relationship and him struggling with being with someone who is not only you know able to heal from everything, but has a bit of a cavalier attitude because of said power? Right. Well, I came at that from, you know, Bendis had put them together in his run. He originally had her having her with Scott Summers briefly and then he went off to join his dad in space and she and Warren got together and I thought that that those two were such a odd pairing but like that's the thing that happens you know sometimes a friend of yours will start dating someone from a different social group in high school and it's very strange to have like the jock show up at the stoner party or whatever the case may be <laughs> uh, and yeah I thought that was really interesting the two of these people didn't make a lot of sense from the outside but that is such a such a teenage thing where you you encounter other social groups because of who you date and maybe it works even if it looks like it doesn't so i wanted to have them have a relationship that they both really enjoy but then yeah start to start to pick at the at the differences and i 
Wolverine to me, currently, both in her solo series and in our book, she's trying to figure out how to be, how to fill that role, how to be what Logan was. And, you know, she, X-23 was a very calculated, um, careful character. You know, she would always plot things out and her mind automatically sees the best solution to the answer or, and you know that's how she jumps in and deals with, with with situations. And Wolverine is much more of a dive in head first and solve it with your claws. So I think there's there's something that would there's something about that that would be attractive to Laura. Like Laura could see, well, I don't have to be this obsessive planning, you know, like um, killer that I was created to be. I can be Wolverine. I can be the one that, you know, my skin grows back. So if it gets burnt off the hell with it, I can jump in head first. And in, in some ways that's good. You know, that's her kind of moving beyond the, the programming that she's got. But, you know, this is also a character who used to cut and used to deal with things by harming herself. So, you know, maybe, maybe that's not the best thing for her to be doing all the time. It's, it's again, it's a gray area. I like to deal with it's, it's the character, trying to deal with a couple different things and maybe it's healthy, maybe it's not, but it's also a thing that would be very difficult for Warren because Warren knows her really well. You know, he dates her, he talks to her one-on-one more than most people. He sees things about her that she may not see about herself. He sees the ways that this could be bad for her. He, she also, you know, she's constantly telling him in the, in the book that she can't be hurt, but when he met her, she just come out of Avengers arena and was very hurt. Like was crazy hurt was it had a lot of old wounds reopened and was in a, a really dark place. So he is glad she's happy, but he's worried she'll go back there. And then as we saw in issue five, six, I don't know which issue it was, the one, the, the, the end of the, the blob fight issue, Warren's also dealing with some crazy stuff himself. Like Warren also has some feelings and emotions and weird uh, space fire wings <laughs> that he's dealing with that he's been tamping down. So seeing his girlfriend like jump head first and all this stuff, when he's trying to maintain, you know, like a reasonable mental state while he has all of these new feelings and powers, um, uh, boiling around in his head. So maybe he's projecting a little bit too. So yeah, the the relationship uh, while kind of weird and annoying to some people (laughs) on the surface has a lot of stuff going on underneath. And I think that's, it's really human it's really really relatable we all have strange relationships when we're young that we don't really fully understand until we're a little bit older i think that's what they can be and what they are it's fun to write where did the idea for pickles come from (laughs) uh i think jason latour i was trying to figure out a mechanism in the first issue or the second issue to get, they were all over the country because they had all gone on these road trips and we were going to reconvene and I needed to get everybody to um, Chicago to help save Scott and I was like, well, it doesn't make sense. Like, they're too far away. How would they get there? And I was explaining this to Jason Latour and he's like, well, just give them a bath, man. <laughs> like, that's <laughs> the solution. So I, I, you know, I wrote that in and then I thought, well, I don't want, you know, I don't want this guy to just be a, a, a means to an end. He needs to be a character. So yeah, Pickles kind of kind of grew into a, a uh, funny little sidekick for the for the team. What is it like writing a beast who you know is is still like the smartest guy in the room, but technology has kind of come beyond him? <laughs> yeah, it's really fun. A beast. You know, the other some of the other characters are more obvious that 
the ways in which they're haunted by their destiny, you know, like the, by the thing they're supposed to come, supposed to become. But you know, Beast <laughs> saw his older self break a lot of rules whenever he brought them forward in time, and his older self is this, you know, looks completely different and behaves completely different, and, and has has lived this long, full scientist life where he has learned and, and grown with the times and he matches the the place that science is at in the, in the modern Marvel universe and you know he was on that path our young beast was on that path and understood that and he was like at the cutting edge and then yeah now the world has moved on he invents stuff and it already is there he invents a fancy machine to track things that are you know, like real time track things that are going on in the world and Twitter does it better you know like the, the kids that are from <laughs> this time just show him a smartphone like yeah we can just see what's trending on this social media which is something that he would have never conceived of so that it's fun because he is still he's still very smart it's not like he's dumb all of a sudden but yeah he's, he's in this world he doesn't fully understand and doesn't know where his place will be and we, we play with that a lot going forward the, um, the Doctor Strange issue that we have coming up deals with that directly and um, we're going to be taking Hank in interesting directions is there any chance of having Gene back in the book on a regular basis ever or is that going to happen or <laughs> I mean, it could. It, uh, we don't have plans for that now. Uh, Jeff, Extraordinary X-Men is dealing with all of the big mutants in the Marvel Universe storylines. So the cast of that book are very tied up in, in bigger things that are happening and coming down the road. Um, once we've gotten over some of those mountains, it's possible that the cast could change up. And I, I love Jean Grey. Like, X-Men Season 1 is my is my love letter to Jean Grey, so I would, I would put her in the book in, in a second. But you know, I don't want to mess up Jeff's story or, or get in the way. So we may see we may see a guest star soon, and it would be possible, you know, to see the cast mix up like that down the road. But that would be a ways a ways off. It's interesting to seeing how I mean you've been playing with you know kind of the four male leads without you know kind of their their female foil that we're used to, um, especially with you know in Bendis's run, ever not everyone, but they all kind of had their own you know, interesting interactions with Gene or slightly romantic interactions. So it's interesting to kind of have that element taken away and just have, you know, just the boys. And then, you know, obviously Laura and Edie as well. And then Genesis as well. It's just an interesting cast. Yeah. And and that was kind of, because the premise of the book is this is what's going on with the X-Men in the Marvel universe. And we're not doing that. It, we were able to kind of send them off. You know, you, you, if you go on a road trip with your buddies and your girlfriend doesn't go, you know your your adventures don't have anything to do with your girlfriend for the most part while you're away. So that's kind of how we looked at it: is that Jean is still a big part of these people's lives. She's just not in it right now. You know? It's interesting, actually. That's a, a really interesting point you make. It's uh, the book at times almost feels, and I mean this in a good way, and I think part of this is because of Bagley, but uh, it definitely feels like an, an ultimate book. Like it's kind of. It doesn't feel like it's as weighted down by other elements of, you know, kind of continuity, and it just kind of tells a, a fun, fresh story, and if this was the only book you were reading, that's okay. Yeah, and we, we did it on purpose to make it accessible, and also just, if every single X book is dealing with the fact that these there's a cloud that's killing people, <laughs> and they're, you know, they can't, like it, it's pretty dour, and Extraordinary is very wrapped up in the in a larger continuity and uncanny is it it's almost like an x-force book it's so dark that yeah we wanted to have the the light accessible almost like a throwback book um and it's definitely fun to write it as long as i avoid certain touchstones i get to, to have a lot of freedom with it 
but yeah, that was a that was a conscious choice. What uh, what what characters would kind of be on your bucket list to write an either villain or hero at some point? Just in general, or for X Men? Uh, just in general. And it's hard. Like when I first got into comics, I would have said Guy Gardner, but you heard me say earlier I'd never touch the character now because <laughs> the ones you love are are really. Oh, sorry. Nope. All right, go ahead. Yeah, the characters you love are oftentimes the the toughest ones to to get a handle on, or the ones that you feel like you you don't do as well. Um, so, man, it's I would love to write adult Cyclops again if if they ever bring him back to life um, because I love that character and I think they they've done really interesting stuff with him. But I'm kind of telling that story now, um, so I would have to think of I'd have to think of some way some way around that. Um, I think it'd be fun to write. Boy, most of my answers are going to be people have already written. Like I would love to do like a Forge Nemesis miniseries or a Domino Colossus miniseries because I I love those characters together from Cable and X Force. But I mean, it's just I guess that's how my mind works. Like once I once an editor asks me about something, I figure out my in. Or once I have a, if I have a story idea that I want to tell, I figure out what characters to do with it. But it's hard to pick. You know that that one character that would be a lot of fun. Uh, now you've already given us teases with uh, all new X Men and with uh, Spider Woman. Is there anything else you can kind of tease out for us before we wrap up? Those are the two major. I mean, those are the only things I'm working on that are announced. Um, I've got some creator own irons in the fire, so uh, stay tuned. But none of that's none of that's been announced yet, and. Yeah, I, I think people should check out Spider-Woman coming up. People should check out Apocalypse Wars. All those stories are very fun and different. And, uh, you know, other than unlike a normal crossover um, where you have to buy these other books to, to get the story, this is three distinct stories that all kind of tell the larger picture of, of where Apocalypse is in the, in the past, present, and future of the Marvel Universe. It kind of sounds like what they used to do. Like back during, uh, I think it was Fall of the Mutants, was basically like... You know, three completely separate stories under the same banner uh, with thematic, you know, crossover, but that was about it. And yeah. I think at the time it was what X Factor, New Mutants, and Uncanny, and there was no actual story crossover, but they, again, thematic. So it sounds like it's along those lines. Yeah, that, that was that was conscious. Like, we, that's what we wanted to do. Partially because we were plotting all of this in the middle of Secret Wars, so it sounded fun to do something that wasn't so. You know, like tightly, every book is involved. Thing, more of a yeah. Let's tell these kinds of stories and, and, and give the readers different different viewpoints on the thing. So yeah, that that was very much what we're going for. Well, and I think it would also be harder because, the, as you mentioned, like the three books have such a distinct tone. Like they're all very different from each other, which I appreciate from a reader perspective. That it's not like you're getting just you know slightly different shades of gray. You're getting completely different tones in each book. And each one feels like it has a very different reason for being and and gives the reader something new. And I think in the past that wasn't always the case, but I appreciate that as a reader now that each X book is very distinct. Yeah, when this early in our run, I mean, later on when we've been at it a while, we could probably dovetail those those tones together. But that was part of it is that this is going to happen fairly early in all, and our books are just finding their feet. Can we tell these stories in a way that continues all of everything on the same path, and then maybe come back around later to you know you see all these things converge? So yeah, I'm, I'm glad they let us do it that way, and, and understood that, that you could have a crossover that wasn't 
quite so so tied together. It's interesting. I guess you're you're involved in two crossovers at the same time. Very different uh, methodologies. <laughs> yeah, when the nice thing about Spider Women is that we we had decided we were going to do it and done some basic plotting over the phone, and then around the time we needed to lock up, you know, like a, a game plan for all the issues, uh, Jason, Robbie, and I were all in. New York for New York Comic Con, so we actually sat for a day in the Marvel offices with the editors and hashed it out together. And so that book is, from a plot standpoint, very much all, like a melding of our minds. Like we figured it out together and, and, and had our arguments. It's like a writers' room, like a television writers' room. <laughs> so I, I think that's very cohesive. Um, it's not all of us trying to tell the story that we think is supposed to happen. It's very much we create, crafted this thing together, and then each book is a piece of it. So that's a lot of fun. Excellent. Well, Dennis, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time and telling us all about your uh, your book so far and what we have to look forward to. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a blast.